This is The Shape of Advice, a new podcast series created by Professional Planner. My name is Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus Financial and Editor of Professional Planner. This series is a conversational-style exploration of the advice landscape that draws on the knowledge and insights of industry thought leaders, experts, and practitioners who are forging ahead with new partnerships, augmenting business models, and adapting to new technologies. Please visit professionalplanner.com .au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. It's great to be joined today by Simon Hoyle, Head of Market Insights at Core Data, and Lena Ridley, General Manager at um, Profile Financial Services. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hi, Matt. Hi, Lena. Good to be with you. Really looking forward to this conversation and to kick off this series. We've worked um, with you, Simon, in different ways over the years, uh, we do a licensee owners list that we put out yearly that you work on. You're also um, contributing as, as a columnist. Always interested in your insights, Simon. So I might just kick off with you for this one and um, just get a little bit of a, a personal history. And if we can maybe get a sense for how that personal in- history is intertwined with uh, the progress of the advice industry, I think that'd be uh, really interesting, Simon. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. So, I I started writing about financial services and specifically about financial planning and, and personal finance, I guess, in a slightly broader sense in the mid to late uh, 80s. Um, and this was a period of time when uh, business reporting in general uh, and as a result of that, personal finance reporting was really starting to emerge uh, from, from the, the, the uh, sort of bowels of the newspapers onto the, the front pages, um, if I can, can put it that way. Um, and personal finance and financial planning in those days were fairly rudimentary. Um, it was It's essentially a product sales function, uh, which mas- often just masqueraded as, as advice. And then uh, as, as that started to, to develop, uh, we, we got to the early, uh, early 90s and we had the advent of compulsory superannuation. And that was a real driver of demand for financial advice because suddenly people started to realise they would have to take responsibility and control for uh, funding their own retirement and they needed some help to get that, to get that done. Um, there was greater scrutiny on financial advice as a result of that, how it was structured and how it was delivered. And then we started to see just wave after wave of regulatory reform rolling out, which was designed to address some of the structural issues that were starting to emerge in what was traditionally a sales-based activity. So, we had financial services reform in the early 2000s, and then that rolled into the future of financial advice changes that we all know and love, and more recently, the professional standards that are being rolled out by by FASIA. But simultaneously with all of this, there there was a, a push that started to emerge from uh, inside the industry to be respected and, and regarded as a profession. Uh, and that was that, that means a very different culture and a very different mindset from the sales-based origins that financial advice has. Um, and, and so the journey of my experience of financial advice and writing about it has been to observe and, and, and watch and write about and, and talk to the, the, the key players in, in the industry as that evolution has occurred, as it's moved from its sales-based and product-focused results to being on the cusp of, of an actual uh, and genuine 
profession. Yeah, I think one of the things that this um, series will explore is transformation, the industry's transformation, but individuals and and, and practices and, and businesses um, transforming from, you know, obviously what it was to perhaps what it could be and what it's leading into. Do you think the industry can or individuals can transform? I mean, transformation is really, really hard, right? I mean, you have to be intentional about it. You have to probably put a lot of effort into it. And um, uh, and sometimes, you know, the legacy or the incumbency can um, be that biggest challenge to to transform. And, it, uh, you know, based on current numbers, um, you know, people entering the industry is is fairly low. So it seems to be up to the ind- individuals who are already in the industry. You're absolutely right when you say that change is is difficult. Matt, and it's particularly difficult when it's being forced upon you, when somebody is is forcing you to change rather than it occurring organically or, or kind of um, fr- from some sort of innate desire to, to change. The advice industry, look, the first thing to say is that regulation and the need for reform and all of the changes that we've seen hasn't been been driven by the good financial planning firms and the good financial advisors. It's been driven by the poor practices. And I mean practices in both senses of the word there. Poor businesses, poorly structured businesses focused on doing the wrong things. And practice in the sense of the way of doing things, being, as I, as I mentioned, being a sales-based or, or sales-focused uh, industry. But <laughs> change... Change can also be liberating and change can also can open up fantastic opportunities. And that's kind of what you need to keep an eye on, I think, when you're, you're thinking about the sorts of changes that have flowed through the industry uh, and the pressures and the pain that it's caused and is causing as it, as it rolls through. Where is it headed? Where is it going? What are we going to look like at the end of this change process? And I don't think you'll get too many people arguing that financial advice is going to be in a better position at the end of this process, whenever that process may end, and it's not just the last of the FASIA deadlines rolls along and then we say, bingo, it's done. Change is going to be constant. Um, it's probably going to be constant, but a no, famous last words, constant, but at a slightly more sane pace, perhaps. But you've got to keep your, your eye on the, on the end game uh, and what it's actually leading to and what the benefits are going to be for those that, are, that, those that remain. Uh, in the industry and those that are able to capitalize on the opportunities that emerge. So thankfully, uh, Lena, we have uh, you here to take our esoteric and sometimes uh, conceptual conversation uh, and make it a little bit more, I suppose, uh, relevant and practical for listeners as well. But yeah, really interested in, you know, getting a little bit of personal history from you, um, kind of where you are a little bit about um, Profile Financial Services and and your journey in, uh, in the advice industry as well. Sure. Thanks, Matt. So I stepped into the industry in January of 1999. And for those that recall the change, and certainly my first exposure to regulatory change in the industry was um, when we were getting rid of cars, if you remember those, for the old insurance brokers. And that was sort of the, the first step into changing regulation. And it's not really stopped since, and I don't expect that it will stop for quite some time. 
But my focus in the industry has always been on the practice management side of things. And since I joined the industry, I've sort of really covered the advice models that are out there. So whether it's the single business AFSL-like profile where I am now, through to the institutional licensee, um, the listed licensee, uh, the accounting firm with the with the AFSL. Uh, there's been a real spectrum of businesses there that have have taught me a lot. Um, the, the changes, the regulatory changes, as Simon said, they push us forward. They should push us forward. But the businesses with the right intent have always been um, at heart ahead of those changes. So even back in 1999, before we moved to the AF, current AFSL structure, before we implemented SOAs, there were still advisors that at heart were acting in the best interests of those clients. They were constructing lists of products that they believed would deliver value to the clients, um, which we now know as APLs and, and there's a whole set of regulation around those. So, as Simon said, it, it's been raising the bar on, on the bottom of, of the industry, but it certainly hasn't stopped the top of the industry continuing to forge ahead. Uh, when I look at the changes outside of the regulatory environment, what it's really driven is the the change in the type of person and the type of advisor that I see being attracted to the industry and being attracted to wanting to to enter the market, stay in the market, those that are then exiting the market and what's happening with that. And we... Yeah. Sorry, Lena. Sorry. <laughs> we did see that very sales-focused, um, you know, the in insurance broker that, you know, even cars to some of the insurance brokers were too much paperwork. But but now, you know, we've got that really good advice structure around providing insurance advice to a client. Um, but we've gone from that very sales model and, and then the pendulum swung very far in the other direction to making sure that we had good technicians for the right reasons. And what we seemed to lose along the way was that ability to connect with people and the ability to educate them and help them really see the value in what it was that we could do for them. And so what I'm really pleased to see is the type of person that's in the industry and, and the type of advisor that we have. You know, they're good technicians, they're great technicians, they're coming to us either almost completed CFP or having completed CFP with a genuine desire to want to help somebody because these are smart people and they could make money in lots of different ways. So there are additional reasons why they want to be in our industry. And that's really pleasing to see over the years. Mm. It's good to see that you're observing um, new people coming into the industry. Yeah, and, and just on profile financial services, I mean, just a little bit more about perhaps, you know, what where's the opportunity for you as a, as a business? Where are you focusing your efforts? And just a little bit about kind of more your client base as well and, and how you're approaching advice. Sure. So, Profile has been around since 1985, so they have seen all of these changes that we've talked about. They started off with a, a institutional licensee in the very early days, but made the move to an, a, being a single business AFSL um, many moons ago and have never regretted that decision. And part of what we offer to clients is the optics of being a single business AFSL. And for some clients, you know, that perception is, is quite important to them. We're a goals-based advice business and that has treated us or seen us do, you know, 
perhaps better than others some year for our clients. Um, particularly this year, you know, we've not had the liquidity issues with with clients needing to cash out of certain positions. You know, the the, the very steep dip in the market. Yes, we bounced back from that, but being very goals focused helped us and having those clients educated around that goals-based advice has really helped us. From a market point of view and where we want to go, much like lots of other businesses, we went through a period in, in March, April, May where we were in survival mode. The external environment was extremely chaotic. We were just um, waiting to see what would hit us next that gets tiresome after a while, particularly people that just want to get on with it and grow. And so we deliberately made the decision to get ourselves out of survival mode and back to our growth path. So the focus now is on what has changed in the world and what do we need to do? So are we tight enough on our market segmentation? Who are our clients? Um, and our clients are professionals, uh, professional accumulators that have a need for um, protection advice and accumulation advice through to the retirees that have been with us since the 80s that might be now second or third generation um, who are then in that sort of retirement drawdown phase. Uh, so whether they're accumulation professionals or retired self-made professionals, it, that seems to be our, our target market. But we're focusing on how has their view of the world changed and what is the client experience that they want from us now. And, you know, we often have a, a bit of a, a, a tongue-in-cheek laugh sometimes about how we think of all the things that 2020 has brought us, but what 2020 is, has brought us as a silver lining, I think, has been the, the, the mass use of retirees and, and the mass migration mm. of retirees onto Zoom. Mm. And so that's really changed what they want from us. So they might be wanting to shift three quarters of their, you know, contact with us from the face-to-face -face meeting to uh, online meetings, um, Zoom calls, Teams calls, phone calls, um, and we're more than happy to deliver that to them. We're still seeing um, prospecting that's, that's going through a bit of a change at the moment we're noticing that our prospects that know that they're within distance of an office still want to be able to look the advisor in the mm. eye to get a sense of them early in the relationship. But we're seeing more prospects from further afield that are more than happy to have a remote relationship from start to finish. Um, so that's a little bit of a difference there. And then just the, the mind shift, we're spending a lot of time working with the team and talking with each other around how we engage our business development activities in a digital world and an online world um, versus the let's meet up in the city and have a coffee and then I'll come to your office and, you know, that environment's gone. Yeah, I th I think I recognise the change in um, in speed, I suppose, um, that you're d describing there, the frenetic you know, start to the year and, and it feels like there's a little bit of a line in the sand and now's the opportunity for business owners and strategists and advisors to take a little bit of stock and start to think about their business and perhaps maybe reimagine their identity and and then think about um, what next for the future. I, I definitely f feel that around in a lot of the conversations I have. Simon, are you, is that something that you're seeing in the industry that it seems like, you know, there seems to be a little bit of a plateau in a way for, for advisors and practices? 
I think that's probably a good way of, of putting it, Matt. I mean, one thing that never ceases to amaze me about the financial advice industry and the people who work in it is how adaptable and resilient they are uh, and how they're able to deal with, with change. I mean, they've had to, I suppose, but, but it's become part of, of life. Um, but I think you're right that um, the changes that we've seen that have been sort of thrust upon us in the last several months have kind of been assimilated now. We've kind of established an operating rhythm and a way of working and businesses have adjusted. Uh, and so there isn't quite the same amount of energy being ex expended on just trying to adapt and just trying to survive. There is now much more of a, a forward-looking mindset thinking about what's possible, what are the, the opportunities going to be that, that emerge from, from all of this. Um, certainly in some of the organizations that we're, we're working with, um, that's how they're thinking. Uh, that They're looking to, to get a, a line, get a beat on the, on the future and, and help their advisors make sense of what's coming and, and, and how to be successful rather than this sort of hunkered down survival mode that they've been in. Yeah, can can you draw on maybe some data or I mean what are you seeing? What what are some of the attributes, I suppose, of some of the businesses and advisors and, and how they they're shaping up? Yeah, so Lena's touched on a few of them, which is hardly surprising because she's with a, a pretty successful advice firm. So you'd expect them to be across this sort of stuff. But getting really, really clear on uh, who their clients are. So who's their target market, if you like, and what is it that they actually deliver? What is their value proposition? And getting really, really good at describing that and describing that in terms that really resonate with, with the target market. And this concept of knowing who your, your clients and your potential clients are is, is critical because a firm that tries to be all things to all people is really just going to end up being nothing to anyone. Um, you've got to know what your strengths are, know how you like to interact with clients, know what the value is, how you articulate the value and, and whether it works for those clients or not, or attract clients to you that, that, um, that understand how you're expressing your value and really be clear on, on those, those things. Also within the business, we've got 12 client-facing advisors at the moment and whilst our target market is accumulator or retired professionals, within our advisor base, we spend a bit of time talking with them about what is their actual target client within that market. And we've got some advisors that uh, just have a preference and a passion for something different, whether it's the... Um, you know, the veterans or whether it's the, you know, the, let's, the atypical engineers, let's call them the ones that are very interested in the detail and the shares and the, you know, the, or the ones that really just want that protection and knowing that they've got protection like the dentists. So, you know, even within that, we, we're honing our advisors to be able to say, well, if, if that type of client comes to us, what's the best match for them? How can we get that advice match, that value match, that personality match so they stay with us for longer? I think identity of uh, is quite interesting. I mean, I know you've talked about um, the identity of vice practices before and kind of grouping them. Can you talk a little bit about that, Simon, and um, and perhaps that might resonate with with listeners if they're able to to help um, understand their own identity or categorization, and particularly if they're, you know, in a strategic way thinking about where to next? 
When we started to think about what the likely impact of the changes we were seeing sweeping through the industry were going to be, um, it was really difficult to make generalizations about how it was going to affect an advice firm unless you understood a little bit about that particular advice firm. I mean, that, that, that much should, should go without saying. So we segmented, did some work and segmented the advice, advice practices into four different segments. And we call them the, uh, the foxes, oxes, islands, and cruises. And there's some very broad characteristics that um, apply to them. They're necessarily a little bit general as well. We think about the the islands for a start. They're often the the licensees or the advice firms where they're one or two person operations. Um, they are uh, somewhat resource constrained. They're often absolutely sensational advisors, by the way, and they have really great relationships with their clients, just like most advisors do. But they're operating as islands, and so they struggle to do things like deliver advice. With the same sorts of economies of scale that are that are available to larger organizations, so they're set, they're facing one one set of, of challenges. When we look at the the cruisers, these can sometimes be quite quite uh, big businesses or certainly larger businesses. But their one of their key characteristics is that they have a large reliance on grandfathered remuneration, grandfathered commissions, and so they're facing a different set of challenges. Um, some of the challenges are common, but that's a, that, that creates a, a particular set of challenges. And when we looked at the market, we thought that those islands and those cruises represented about 42% of all advisors in, in the market. And we knew that the number of advisors was likely to, to contract, and that's certainly what is, has happened. Um, some of them would leave the industry, which we're seeing, but some of them had an opportunity to transform themselves and find a path forward that would address the issues that they're, they're facing. And the two segments that we thought were not, not facing challenges, but were potentially in better positions to, 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 to flourish were the foxes and the oxes. To characterize the foxes, they're often relatively young advice businesses, um, you know, four or five years, years old, that, that sort of thing. Um, they're typically, um, the, the advisors inside the firms are typically uh, a bit on the, the younger than average as well. They're highly qualified educationally. They're either compliant with FASIA or within striking distance of being compliant with, with FASIA. Really good adopters of technology and they're growing quickly. They're bringing on new clients. And the other segment, the, the last segment is the, um, the OXIS. These are by and large, large corporatized established firms that have number of advisors inside, um, old and young. They have a number of, of equity uh, holders in the business as well. There are owners, trans new owners coming in, old owners transitioning out. So they've got a bunch of challenges uh, around that as, as well. They have great IT systems, fantastic long-standing relationships with clients, uh, and they deliver really high-quality uh, advice to, to, uh, to their clients. And we thought that those were the two segments that that were in the best position to to to, to thrive and flourish as this change mm. uh, flowed through. Um, we're going to need to take another look at the market and see if, in fact, the island and cruiser segments have shrunk mm. as a proportion. Um, my very strong suspicion is that that they have, um, for the reasons I've just 
described, but we haven't yet put put hard numbers on that. Yeah. And Lena, I mean, when you're thinking about uh, your identity or your strategy, I mean, do you think about what you want to be, who you are in, in that way? Or is it is that is it a little bit different? I wouldn't label us in the same way that, that Simon's obviously done for, for his piece of research, but we certainly think about who we are and where we want to be mm-hmm. and, and how do we actually maintain relevance in a world that has changed. Yeah. And it, our relevance to our clients uh, last year might be the same as our relevance to our clients this year, but given the events of this year, we don't think that that relevance is going to be the same or look the same in three years' time. Mm. So we're spending a lot of thinking time around that at the moment to say, do we need to alter um, either our statement around our market segment, um, how we're actually pitching that that uh, value proposition both to our clients and our employees because talent development is really important to us, and then how do we actually deliver that in a, a commercial profitable way where we might have small competitors come into our market much the same way that we might go into mm. new markets just because of, of the digitization of what we're doing and, and the shift to online advice. Yeah. Judging so, from what you're saying, Lena, and don't take this the wrong way, but I'd say you're an ox. Yeah, happy to be an ox, Simon. Yeah. Delighted to be an ox, if, based on your descriptions. So, so what's on the table? I mean, uh, you presume you're having those types of types of conversations now uh, internally, and you know what's on the table. I mean, you you guys have your own license. I mean, is that something mm. that's going to endure? Um, what are some other things that are up for grabs? We do feel it's important for us to retain our own AFSL. Um, growth is on the cards. There are a number of different ways that we can grow. We spent a number of years um, with an acquisition strategy in place. Uh, We've paused that just at the moment, just because of the events of this year. Uh, That's not to say that that's on pause or on hold for, you know, for much longer. Um, So, we're still looking for those buying opportunities for the the right type of firm. Uh, We're looking at uh, merger opportunities. You know, nothing's really off the table other than being bought out and disappearing into a much, much larger licensee. That's that's not something that we're keen to do. Yeah. Given where we are um, in relation to banks exiting wealth and you know, perhaps a lot of advisors having gone out into getting their own license and um, trying that on for a little while, perhaps um, have arrived at a point now where they're considering the value of having a license or, you know, what structure they intend to, to go forward with, given it's a year or so on since since a lot of that corporate um, dismantling, you know, happened. Simon, are you seeing that yeah, so we're definitely seeing uh, advisors coming out of the the large licensees, and we can see where they're starting to sort of a- aggregate. Um, we think of the advice market as having sort of five five tiers. Um, sometimes we talk about four tiers, depending on whether we lump the the bottom two together. Um, the top tier is what we describe as licensees that have five hundred or more advisors on the license, and the second tier is. 100 to 499 and so it goes. And we can see advisors are coming out of the top tier and they're aggregating in two places. They're aggregating in the second tier, the 100 to 500 
advisor licensees and they're aggregating at the bottom of the market as well in the one to 10 advisor mm. uh, licensees. Mm. So we can see that restructuring taking place and, and the shift is quite significant. The top tier has lost more than a quarter of its uh, advisors um, and the the mid tier or, or, or the next tier down has grown by something around six or seven percent um, as they've as they've moved into that space, and the bottom end of the market has grown by something more than than twenty percent. So they're, they're definitely moving towards those smaller smaller entities um, and gravitating towards the smaller licensees. But to pick up on the issue of of being an AFSL for a moment, I mean. Um, w- We know from work that we do with consumers that the majority of clients of financial advisors don't actually know who their advisor's licensee is, except in cases where the advisor is is self-licensed, where the advice firm has its own AFSL. In that case, clients seem to be very well informed that the advisor has their own has their own license. And it seems to be that those advice or those licensees and those advice firms are making a quite a big play of it and and really uh, explaining the benefits of having their own license very effectively. But having your own license is, you know, you've got to go into it and do it for the the, the right reasons. Uh, And you need to go into it with with your eyes open. Um, Running an AFSL requires a certain set of skills to, to do it effectively. Most financial advice firms are small businesses or some of them are sort of medium-sized businesses. Running a business requires a specific set of skills as well. And being an advisor obviously requires a very specific set of skills. I'm sounding increasingly like Liam Neeson as I'm going through this. <laughs> but those skill sets don't always overlap. Um, you could be a great advisor and lousy at running a business. You could be a great business manager and a pretty poor advisor and you might be just useless at running a, a license. So you've got to make sure that if you go into running your own license, you've got the resources, um, uh, that's financial resources and the human resources to run the license effectively and efficiently and, and set it up for the right reason. Um, as advisors are coming out of the top tier that, that I was talking about a, a little while ago uh, and they're gravitating towards the bottom end of, of the market, uh, a lot of them are telling us that they're doing it because the compliance burden they've been put under inside the larger licensees is just intolerable. Um, and often the compliance that's being foisted upon them is driven by the licensee itself. It's the licensee covering its own ass, not helping the advisors to be compliant and deliver great advice to clients. So they're looking for some relief from that kind of, of pressure um, which is a legitimate response, but where the response is to avoid, where the getting the AFSL is driven by the desire to avoid what is appropriate and proper compliance, that's where you particularly run into problems. If you think you can make your life easier by cutting corners and not worrying too much about compliance, then that might work for a little while. But I suspect that when the regulator comes and has a look at what you're doing, uh, it might uh, might discover a few problems with that approach. I think the best way is to just assume that the regulator is always going to come and start there. And, you know, if I think back to when I got started in the industry in 1999, I worked for a practice in Canberra 
And we were not very far, well, we were literally about a block and a half from the ATO and we weren't very far from ASIC. And they used to, if they wanted to test out something new in the market, they would go around some of the financial planners in Canberra and knock on the door. And so that's a lesson that I've carried through my whole career is if you assume that ASIC is going to knock on your door and and make your decisions based on that, then that's not a bad place to start. Um, But you picked up on a really great point um, in terms of the way that we help advisors meet the compliance and the regulatory environment. And it's starting to split into two different areas. And and we're very much looking at this as a practice in the sense of what are the, and this is just not from AFSL management, but also from an advice point of view, what are the, um, the commoditized, repetitive, uh, repeatable tasks um, versus the ones that really add that value to either the relationship or the business, whether it's from a regulatory point of view or the client experience. And starting to outsource those things to those that have set up their businesses to do that for you and keep what we're doing much leaner in-house, much more client-focused and client-led and and just making sure we're getting the value which translates into the profits. Yeah. And then do you you want to just um, push a little bit further on that, some of the things that you've made a call on and some of the things you're considering? So... um, If I start on the advice side of things, so some of the administration we've outsourced to the Philippines with great success. Um, So just the preparation of certain standard documents, um, reviews, for example, um, risk quotes, things like that. And what we found and the relationship and the service that we're getting from the firm that we're using is fantastic. And so that's really helped us focus on our onshore staff on picking up the phone, talking to the client, answering their queries, being responsive uh, and the things that the clients value. If I take that over into an AFSL um, experience, we are really looking at the moment around why are we actually maintaining all of these policies in-house when we can actually make sure that we've got that really robust set of policies that are customised to our business. Let's get them um, in from the outside. Let's outsource our file audits. Let's outsource um, some of the, you know, the commoditized things around running AFSL so that we can keep in-house. Um, so, uh, RM, we've, we think it's very important to keep that RM responsibility within our business um, so that, that our RMs are very close to what's happening um, rather than arm's length. We think that makes us better um, and that we can spend our time with our internal compliance staff really educating the advisors to, to just be engaged in always being compliant, always working in best interest, um, continuing that education rather than just making advisors tick boxes, which becomes a risk in and of itself. Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things I think this series is really going to, um, you know, focus on is um, is tech enablement as well and efficiency. Uh, I think that's going to be, you know, a big part of the changing shape of of the advice industry and its identity. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm always curious. Can advisors? It, it feels like 
you, you know, in large networks, which like let's presume, you know, 40%, perhaps even more half of the industry, you know, within these large tier one groups were, you know, given all their processes and technology and, um, and just use whatever proprietary system was made available. And, and now perhaps they're discovering, prioritizing tech and tech enablement. I mean, are advisors predisposed to that kind of activity and um, can they succeed at that, do you think? Well, I th think one of the things they're discovering as they go through that process, Matt, is just how much tech really costs um, mm. when it's not being subsidized by <laughs> a licensee or by some other other party. Mm. Um, we, we, did some work. <laughs> we did some work with um, uh, NetWealth on its advice tech report this year and last year as well. Uh, and that was a, an interesting piece of work. It, it identified a group of advice practices, which it calls advice tech stars. And these are the advice practices that are really kind of technology literate um, and what's interesting about them is that there is absolutely nothing accidental about the way they, they, they invest in technology. It is deliberate, it is budgeted, it is planned, and it's really thought through very deeply to make sure that all of the elements in the, uh, the tech stack um, integrate effectively. Uh, and by effectively, I mean it, it serves two purposes. It, it improves business efficiency uh, and improves profitability by uh, by making making businesses more efficient, and it in, improves the delivery of advice to to clients as well, and supporting and servicing clients. And it was interesting that when um, the COVID nineteen pandemic struck, and everybody upped stumps and left their offices and went home to work, um, I wouldn't say it was business as usual for the advice tech stars, but I would say that the disruption to their businesses was significantly less than it was for uh, um, practices and, and businesses that hadn't thought these issues through already. Um, the advice tech stars had everybody at home. They were on laptops. They were set up. They were good to go. Documentation was in the cloud. They could operate as a team. They already had established practices for video conferencing and those sorts of things. Whereas at the other end of the, the spectrum, businesses that hadn't thought this through were really scrabbling to do um, basic things like make sure everybody had a decent internet connection and a laptop at home that they could share documents and they could just do the business as usual things like setting up client meetings and, and pivoting from uh, the face-to-face -face meetings to, to as Lena has, has described, you know, the the seniors on, on Zoom. Um, uh, and, Interestingly and though, Simon, we did for a few months there go back the other way with client appointments just from a client experience point of view because we did have an automated appointment booking system in place um, but what we thought was really needed at that time was that phone call to say hey we're here we know that your review is coming up the world looks really chaotic at the moment what would you like to do and and just reminding people that we were here for them um, and and the house things calls you know are you okay and um, particularly those clients living alone but what we have done now and and we were able to do that because we were tech enabled we did have the the laptops we were in the cloud and so that was the benefit that we could then pick up the phone mm. and now and it's only now that people have started adjusting to you know our inverted commas new normal that we're starting to get back onto our automated appointment booking again <laughs> 
Yeah, that's critical because the worst thing your advisor can do when when times are uncertain is to is to go dark. Uh, I mean, we've seen seen that happening a little bit as as COVID has has swept through, but we see it when there are big market movements, particularly big market crashes. Um, clients often often complain that their advisor wasn't in in touch, but that's often <laughs> that's not often a technology issue. That's more. Well, you know, the advisor doesn't really want to make the call or have the, the tough conversation. <laughs> so I suppose that's a slightly different issue. Yeah, look, it's, um, uh, it's been a great conversation, um, Lena and Simon. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll probably just try to close it out, actually. Yeah. You know, I feel like, I mean, it's a great, it's, I think it's been a great opener. You know, I've personally, you know, I've, I've been really interested in um, in following the advice industry since the Royal Commission you know, there's been there's been some dramatic change. We're talking about COVID now, that that line in the sand. But certainly, you know, even a year bef- before that, and then you know, leading up to that, you know, it's been you know, there's, it's been an eventful time. The the fragmentation of the industry, really, I think, for me, with the 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 exit of our banks from wealth, for me, really feels like, you know, that moment in time when the vice industry, hopefully can, you know, secure its identity. Uh, and my sense is that perhaps if it, you know, if, it, if it's not effective at doing that and intentional at doing that, you know, it could again, once again, be hijacked by whether it be regulators and policymakers or, you know, deep-pocketed institutions looking for ways to create advice distribution networks 2.0. So, you know, here we are at a, at a moment in time, I think, when, you know, the opportunity, I think, is there for the advice industry, you know, advisors to to um, create that. Is that, what it, is that how it feels, Lena, or do you think I'm pontificating on that uh, way too much? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, Simon raised the point right at the start of the podcast around transformation uh, and it's been the one constant is that as an industry, we have transformed a, a hell of a lot since the 80s and 90s and we will continue to do so. And, and the pace of regulatory change goes up and down, um, you know, depending on on the decade or the half decade. And what we're riding right now is a wave of, of digital transformation, mm. um, which will affect lots of, of different things in our businesses um, and as it has our lives. So, I don't think you're pontificating. I think we could probably talk for another two or three hours with the three of us when we get going but thank you for for having us on today yeah happy to leave it there matt it's been good yeah great good good on you thanks to lena thanks simon all the best thanks matt thanks, thanks Lena. Matt. thanks simon 